0: Serves as the preacher for Dahlonega Church of Christ. He has been at the Dahlonega congregation since June of 2018, but he's been in full time ministry since January of 78, and I calculate 43 years. More than 43 years. Brother Apple has served as an instructor for the Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies an instructor for Georgia School of Preaching and Missions, and as speaker for the International Gospel Hour. Jody's here with his wife, Evelyn. Uh, They've been married for nearly 43 years. They have three children and three grandchildren. Their children are adults, of course. Uh, Brother Apple will continue our 2021 summer series by addressing the fruit of patience. And after a prayer, uh, he will come up. That's all about. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We're humbled by your power and awesomeness and your grace, and we appreciate so much this avenue of prayer. We thank you, Father, for your many blessings, for all that you have done for us, for all that you continue to do for us, provide for our needs your plan of salvation, the gift and example of your son for your word and this opportunity tonight to hear and learn from it. We ask that you help open our hearts tonight for your word. Father there are so many things on our hearts and minds we lift them up to you and pray your will will be done in each regard. Finally Father we seek your guidance that our lives will be ever seeking you, only glorifying you. Forgive us when we fall short of that. Bless Brother Jody in delivering his lesson here tonight. And this is our prayer through Christ Jesus. Amen. Good evening.
1: I remember doing this last year, I'll have two different slide sets open, the one that I can see in the back, but one in front of me so I can see it even closer. You might make jokes about my age, but I'm getting older. All right, let me do this real fast. I accidentally closed what I had open here, I apologize. You go ahead and put that up, there we go. This is an unusual picture, isn't it? Anybody know where it was taken? In my garage, very good. No jokes now. Why did I take this picture? I took this picture because I was thinking about this lesson on Monday, two days ago. Everybody celebrated Independence Day on the 4th of July, Sunday. And I uh, celebrated in a unique way. On Monday by cleaning brush up around my property and so in order to do that I had a huge tarp that I spread out and I was loading piles of brush and I don't know how many there are but there are quite a few of them scattered around and I was going to uh, take them drag them down uh, to a ravine and dump them rather than worry about uh, renting a chipper and shredding them all up and so uh, I was piling up brush on this huge tarp, and I was looking for something that I might use to take the different parts of the top of the tarp and fold them over and then hook them together so I could drag them without looking too silly down the hill to uh, the place that I was going to dump them. And so uh, I went into where I thought all my great things were, all of my uh, straps and all of my tie downs, And uh, I opened up a bag, and that's what I saw. And I picked them up, and in anguish and lack of patience, I tossed them on the floor. And that's what you see in front of you. You may see that there's a left shoe over by the orange, and the right shoe is kind of hidden under the uh, word patience. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to be talking about patience in two days. I've got an object lesson to start with. Have you ever had a little bit uh, less than perfect patience? Have you had less than perfect patience about the simplest of things? Like, I've got to untangle this mess so I can do the work that I want to do. Well, that's exactly where I was, and I was a little bit frustrated, so I thought I would share that with you to show you that I'm not perfect. I know you already knew that, but uh, I just as a reminder to myself and to all of us, Uh, that sometimes the littlest of things just tick us off. And they tick us off royally, and they ought not to. Well, why would I say that? Well, I want you to think about some principles that should guide us about how we should behave as God's people. And so I'm going to introduce these four principles, and then I'm going to explain them in a little bit more detail. And I think once we get through the first four and listing them without any explanation, you're going to see where it is that we're going. So let's start with principle number one. First principle, everything that God is, we should be or become. Let that sink in for a second. Everything that God is, we should be and or become something about the nature of God and his attributes, are such that they are there as patterns, exemplars, for us to learn how to be more like him. In what way? In every way. To what degree? Well, that depends on how successful we are in implementing principles and practices that are built into the nature and character of God in our own lives. Principle number two. God created me, God created you, God created all of us so that that first principle is possible. What was the first principle again? God wants me to be like him. And God has made everything so that I can be like him more so than I have been in the past, today and tomorrow and going forward. Now, the extent to which I fulfill what God wants of me, well, that's a me thing in part, and that's a you thing in part. Principle number three becoming and being more like God is not just possible, it's desired. It's desired on God's part, and it ought to be desired on our part. Now, it's quite possible that there are things that God desires of us that we don't desire of our own selves. And therein lies part of the problem. God wants me to behave a certain way. God wants me to be a certain way. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to behave like that. Even though I am equipped from the standpoint of being made in the image of God to accomplish what God wants me to do, Sometimes I flat-out don't want to do it. And therein lies a major problem. That problem is going to keep us from becoming as much like God as we possibly can. And here's the last principle. Becoming and being more like God has multiple ends, multiple goals, multiple destinations in mind. First thing is, When we become more like God and we start being more like God in the future than we have in the past, then that honors and glorifies God as the Creator, and God wants us to do that. God doesn't just ask us to do what He wants us to do, there's a reason behind it. The doing and the not doing of certain things prompts us to be more like God in those key areas keeps us away from being less like God in those key areas that are under consideration. And that gives honor and glory to God. And so there's a reason why God wants me to behave this way. It's good for God. Now, God doesn't become any better because I start to act more like Him. And God doesn't become any worse if I don't act more like Him. But God takes note of it when I do something to glorify Him in however meaningful or however insignificant way I practice that God-likeness. So there's one positive end, one positive goal. Becoming more like God honors and glorifies Him. Number two, it's best for our fellow man. That's all of the rest of you looking at me, and me looking at all the rest of you, and everybody else that we interact with, in family, and our neighborhood, and our jobs, however it is that we connect with people on a regular basis. It's best for our fellow man, as they see me and as they see you, doing what I do to honor and glorify the Creator. You may have heard this before, but we are, in some cases, the only Christ that people see. You might say, well, everybody's got a Bible, maybe. Everybody can read the Bible, yeah. So everybody's personally responsible, I got that. But if they have Bibles or not, and if they read them or not, we should provide them with another opportunity to see Christ living in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, scripture says. And so it's good that we behave the way God wants us to behave, so God's glorified. It's good that we behave the way God wants us to behave so that others can see God, Christ, the Spirit living in us. And then finally, it's best for us as we demonstrate the responsibility to uh, submit to the principles in the great commandments, love God, love neighbor. So that's good for me, and that's good for you. Now, I don't earn points, and you don't earn points. This is not a a scorecard. We're not trying to see how many points we can earn, and therefore God owes us something. No, that's not it at all. All of this is about demonstrating a character, and a likeness that's so much like God, that we want to do this to honor and glorify Him. We want to do this so that others can see God, the Father, Son, and Spirit living and working in us. And we want to do this ultimately, of course, for our own good, but not for our own good. So whatever it is that we introduce about the nature and character of God as we follow up from this point, the principles are the same. God wants me to be certain things for all of these reasons, and of course there are more. So let's think about that a little bit further. Let's look at principle number one that we just looked at. Everything, everything that God is, we should be and or become. I can't become infinite, I got that. But we approach that by living on into eternity by the way we live now. So we don't become God, that's not my point. We don't develop X percent of God likeness and all of a sudden we jump and we're gonna be God. No, that's, that's not at all the case. But we demonstrate God likeness as much as we possibly can in every way. So scripture affirms and scripture assumes that God's character should be a model for ours, especially as it's demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ, the Son, and by means of what we see revealed in scripture, by means of the Holy Spirit of God. You can't read anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, all 1189 chapters, 31,000 plus verses and so forth, except that you see repeatedly an emphasis on God saying, either explicitly or implicitly, these words are written so that you'll see what I'm like, so that you'll be like me too. That's just everywhere in Scripture. Every element of God's character that's addressed in Scripture is written and recorded with the assumption that that's going to click with me, that's going to resonate with me, that I'm going to recognize that, I'm going to become aware of that, and say, oh, God said that for me because he wants me to be what he just said he was. And one of those things is patient. Only on a whole different level than the lack of patience I demonstrated when I had to face that jumbled mess on my garage floor a couple days ago. God's patience far exceeds mine. So scripture tells us that that's what God wants from us. Let's just look at a few examples. We understand that the scriptures teach that God is holy. We see that introduced all over the place in the book of Leviticus. And we see Peter takes up on that message in his own writings. Be holy as God is holy. You can't can't miss that. That doesn't say that the degree of our holiness and the percentage that we might reach from the standpoint of our personal abilities and so forth is ever going to approximate what God's holiness is God's sinless in thought in speech and indeed and I am NOT and you are not and nobody is but still God gives me this directive be holy like I'm holy now, that's a very broad statement in the context of Leviticus, it's often uh, mentioned with reference to the sacrificial system and the preparation for the sacrificial system, and the priests who were going to offer the sacrifices under that system, and the offerers that's everybody else who wasn't a priest under that system. that holiness was supposed to describe in part what God was, as it was going to reflect it, be reflected in their own character. And that doesn't go away. The opening books of the Bible address it. The closing books of the Bible address it. Book of Revelation 22, the scripture cited there. So that's one example. God introduces himself as holy for the purpose of prompting us to look at his example, to become like he is. The Bible teaches that God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. That's an incredible model that's introduced in the opening verses of the book of John. As John the apostle, begins to write about the work of John the baptizer, who's going to introduce the work of Jesus the Christ. He is light. And scripture tells us that not only is God the father of light James 1.17, but we, that's us, members of the body of Christ, Christians, are to shine as lights in this world. God is light, and God wants me to be light. Realizing my light is not as bright not as consistent and constant as is His, just like my holiness isn't, but God wants me to be that way anyway. Another example, God's perfect, sinlessly perfect. And the Bible says we are perfected in Christ not because of my perfections, in spite of my imperfections, but because of the perfectness, perfectness of Jesus the Christ. When it says we're supposed to be perfect as our Heavenly Father's perfect in Matthew chapter five, means we're supposed to be complete supposed to do all those things that are expected of us. Again, this is not teaching sinless perfection, but it's teaching that we incline our hearts and our minds and our actions in that direction. That doesn't mean we should be disappointed when we make a mistake. There's a solution for that. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from sin. 1 John chapter 1, almost the entire chapter addresses that. And so all of these passages are assuming that there's something about the nature of God that's to be imitated, that's to be duplicated, to be replicated in my own life. And I've already introduced the principle at the beginning, that there's nothing said about the nature and character of God, except that it's introduced for me to understand not only who God is, but what God wants me to be. The text could just as easily say, be like me, as it says be holy as I am holy because that's in effect with what's said in Leviticus and as Peter repeats it God says you see me you recognize me you see who I am you see what I'm like you do the same thing in your own life that's what the scriptures are in principle teaching last example God's merciful well, I can't be as merciful as this God well I can't be as holy as this God I can't be as perfect as this God I am not the perfect light that God is and none of these are we saying that we will achieve God likeness in life perfectly even for our own abilities and certainly not on par with God but this passage teaches us all of these that are listed here this is that we're supposed to be merciful the mercy that's extended to us we demonstrate that mercy in turn to others you know the incredible illustration that's presented in Scripture where the man was forgiven of an enormous debt multiple lifetimes of debt that he would not obviously live long enough to repay, and he was forgiven of that debt. And he went out and demanded somebody who could repay the debt they owed him in about 30 to 60 days. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And the man says the same words that the first one said, be merciful to me. Give me time and I'll pay it back. And he demanded immediately, forgetting that he was forgiven of a far larger debt and had him thrown into prison well when that attention came to the master who forgave him a godlike figure he was taken to task how come you didn't show mercy to somebody else like i showed mercy to you let me just get you to think about that every day that you wake up will i show mercy to others today at home at work at play in my neighborhood wherever i go about doing my errands and my business well, I show mercy today to others as God shows mercy to me. That's a constant reminder of God saying, Here's what I'm like. You see what I'm like. You need to respect and understand what I'm like. And you need to go and do likewise. Be like me as much as you possibly can. Well, that's the first principle. The second principle is God's created us so that we can accomplish the first principle. What was that again? We can become more like God. You might say, I'm a sinner okay we can all raise our hand we're all sinners that doesn't keep you from the responsibility that you have to be more godlike god hasn't said well you're a greater sinner than somebody else you are hereby exempted from responsibility to be more like me if you find that passage let me know i'll be glad to read it for everybody it's not there it's not there So God made everybody with the ability to be more like Him than they have in the past. We have the ability to learn who God is. and We have the ability to learn what God wants. It means we have a rational ability. God-given. God-given. So I can see who God is. I can see what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. And I can understand what He's revealed about Himself. And I can understand the pleas that God makes through Scripture... Through scripture itself and the writings of the prophets and the Psalms and so forth, and especially in the teachings of Christ, where they, those pleas are made for me say, read this, see this, know this. Know this. Jesus often said, Do you know what the scriptures say? Why would he say that? Because he understood that it was an obligation for his hearers to read and to understand. So I'm made with the ability to read and understand what God says. It's not anything to do with how intelligent I am. Has everything to do with how willing I am to keep my eyes open to what God wants me to know and do next we have the ability to love who God is and love what God wants this is not like foods I don't like that kind of food I love this kind of food this is God we're talking about it's not enough to say I love God it's not enough to say I want to be obedient to God it's more that you put that love into action it's more that you demonstrate submissiveness to the will of god now that involves my emotional aspects i can love what god loves or i can hate what god hates or i get those things messed up isaiah spoke about those people who called good evil and evil good isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. they had emotions all right but they had things flipped see that in our contemporary world, and it's been that way since man has existed. People call good things bad, they call bad things good. But God knows that I have the ability to recognize good things as what they are and to call them good, and the same thing with reference to bad. And so God knows that I can be what he wants me to be because he's given me the tools in the very nature of my being to put these things into practice, rationally, emotionally, and then morally. You have a sense of oughtness. There There's some things that just make us squeamish not because we're scaredy-cats, but because, oh, that's wrong. The very surface of that's wrong. That's a violation of who God is. That's a violation of what I think. That's a violation of some other person's dignity. We understand what's right. We understand what's wrong. We may not be as perfect, obviously, as God is, but God's given us the tools to mimic his behavior in our, in our, in our own behavior by knowing we can think the way he thinks, feel the way he thinks, And have a love and an oughtness for those moral principles that God has delivered to us and God's made me with such a way that I have a will I make my body do what my body does in large measure and so do you I think what I want to think why because my will says this is what I'm gonna think I say what I want to say because my will says this is what I'm gonna say I do what I want to do because the same reason so God wants me to want what he wants to love what he loves, have a sense of moral altness as he does, and to think the way he thinks. Now, I'm very well aware of the fact that there's a passage in the book of Isaiah that says God's thoughts are above our thoughts. Yeah. And God's ways are above our ways. Yeah. But it's not because they are there naturally beyond us, it's because we don't think like God. And we're not doing what God wants us to do. You read the rest of the context, It teaches us in the opening verses you can think the way god wants you to think no not perfectly you don't become infinite knowledge you can act the way god wants you to act not sinlessly perfect but you can be pleasing to god so all of these things come together the way i think the way i love my sense of moral oughtness and and my ability to express myself through will through motivating myself to do what i want to do All of those things come together to determine how I'm going to act, my behavior. It's all determined by these things. To the degree, greater or lesser, that I am all of these things, rational, emotional, moral, and volitional, that is expressing my will, is the degree to which I'm going to be more like God than not. And if I back off on those things and don't express myself and pursue my God-given abilities to be what God wants me to be, then I'm gonna be less in my behavior towards God. And so sometimes your rationality may be maxed out, but you don't have the will to put it into practice. Sometimes you might have a very strong sense of moral oughtness about what's right or wrong, but you're afraid to speak up, don't wanna be counted for or against something that God would be counted for or against. So all these things have to function in a way that makes me be what God wants me to be to the best of my ability and not the best of your ability. And let me simply say this, I can't judge you based upon what I know and what I think and what I feel and what I see is a sense of right and wrong and how I behave. The best thing for me to do is to prompt you to look at things like this and say, you are gonna be obligated before God to live before God in practicing your soulness, your character, in all of these areas, in a way that's going to be the best for you as much as your ability is to honor and glorify God. So there's an individual thing, but it's also a collective thing because I'm supposed to remind you to do this stuff, and you're supposed to remind me to do the same stuff as well. So this passage in the book of Genesis starts everything. It says, God's going to be made, excuse me, man's going to be made in, in God's image, and there's a plurality there. Let us make Man in our image. In the very beginning, the notion of the Trinity of God is introduced, though it's not fully explained. Let's make man this way. Why? Because we want man to be representatives of us to other men and to be stewards of the creation that we've placed him over in this existence. So, in all of these things, God's asking us to do what he does and to be what he is. Jesus says in John chapter 13 and in that extended passage where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, missing so many clues and cues as to what he wanted them to be, he said, in effect, you need to go and do likewise. And he wasn't just talking about washing other people's feet. He's talking about serving others. God's not here directly for me to serve him, nor is he here directly for you to serve him. The only way I can serve God is indirectly by serving others. And that's what Jesus was teaching in principle in this passage. You can be as much like me as possible if you do, in effect, as I have done for you. Serving others at your cost because you love them, even if it's not regarded. I want you to see, think that about that again. Serve others at your expense, even if it's not accepted and highly regarded. Even if you're kicked in the teeth for doing so, because you're doing this to show other people what God is like. Jesus did that and he died for it. Didn't do it just once, did it repeatedly. Obviously, I can't be as perfect as he was. So there's the second principle. The first one is, God wants us to be like him. The second one is, God's given me the ability, the tools to be just what he is. And the third one is, it's desired. I think that should be a given, but let's think about it for a few moments anyway. It's not just that we can do it, God wants us to do it. Little boys and little girls say to moms and dads, I wanna be an ex. I don't know how realistic that is but maybe you should encourage them to be an ex I want to be a fireman I want to be a nurse I want to be a doctor I want to be a philanthropist I want whatever does that child have the ability probably have they grown into it yet no but encourage people to be what God knows they can be and what you know they can be not because you know more about them than they do but you know what Scripture says you know what God says about other people's abilities. So this passage we looked at before, we alluded to before, in the book of Leviticus, all over the place, it says, be holy as I am holy, especially with reference to the sacrifices and those who are offering them. In this context, Peter repeats it. And I like this comment that's made by one commentator. 1 Peter 1.15 states the second, there are multiple ones there, of four imperatives. What's an imperative? It's a command. Be holy as I am holy is not an optional thing. You want this with your burger or not this with your burger? That's an option. You want this with your Christianity or not with your Christianity? That's an option. Not So with reference to being holy. It's not an optional matter. To what extent are we going to put that into practice? Well, that depends. What's the level of commitment that we have in all the different areas that we talked about before? This other passage that we spoke about before, God is light, Jesus is light, and we're supposed to let our light shine. Why? This passage tells us let your light shine so people are gonna see your good works and glorify you no 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 glorify your father in heaven the good things that I'm supposed to be are not supposed to be like the religious leaders that are taken to task in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 6 who prayed to be seen of men, who fasted to be seen of men who gave alms to be seen of men Jesus said they're gonna have the reward But he's telling us to do these things, not just so people see us, but so they see God in us. So these things are desirable. God says, be like me. God says, you have the ability to be like me. God says, I want you to be like me. I desire that you do this. The question is, do we desire that? Do we seek to be like God as God wants us to be like him? And then the last principle, we've introduced this before, so this will be very brief. Becoming and being more like God has multiple ends, multiple goals in mind. The first one is it honors and glorifies God. We talked about that. Everything that God directs us to do by design honors and glorifies him. The least little thing, even a cup of cold water given in his name, Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 25 counts for something why because he said it does it was done for the benefit of somebody else at your expense so everything that God directs me to do honors and glorifies him it's gonna be best for our fellow man as they see us honor and glorify God why they're going to see that I am doing my dead level best to honor God before them for their benefit it's best for people to see me doing good things as opposed to bad things they're gonna see me regardless what I do They're gonna see you regardless of what you do. And so it's best for people seeing you to be what God wants you to be, or as close as possible to it. And then finally, it's best for me. It's good for me to demonstrate the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, by being what God wants me to be. So that applies to anything and everything that you might think about from the standpoint of the attitudes and the actions that characterize us as Christians. So that's what I want us to think about. Everything that God directs us to do is best for me. I mean, I like it, but it's good for me. You know, you've seen the old commercials, I forget how old it was, the little boy didn't want to eat his cereal. Eat it, it's good for you. I don't believe that. God doesn't say, eat it, it's good for you, and it's not good for you. God doesn't say, think it, and it's good for you, and it's not good for you. Everything that God says he wants us to be involved in is good for us as well as for him and everybody else. So how does this work, all right? So let's just assume on a scale of zero to 100, you're somewhere in the middle, and I don't know where you are from the standpoint, and this is not an issue of how smart you are. It's an issue of how dedicated you are reasonably, rationally, to being what God wants. This is not talking about how emotional you can be, but it's how emotional you can be in loving what God loves and hating what God hates. That's a different thing. You may love lots of things, Lots of physical things about the universe, and about food, and sports, and, and people, and friends. That, that's all great. But this is talk about your emotional quotient, your emotional capability, as it is to be what God wants. Where is it? I don't know. You have to map that out. Where are you from the standpoint of how morally obligated you are to be what God wants you to be? Same thing, I don't know where you are. What's your level of moral morality? how all of these things come to play uh, as you uh, put them into practice in your life and you exert your, your will. I want to do this. Well, is it a wanting to do a good thing for God? Is it a wanting to do a good thing for friends and neighbors and family as well as yourself? And then finally, how all of those things come into, practice, come into play. So if you look at these five areas, You know, our rational abilities, our emotional, moral, volitional, and behavioral abilities, all of them are 20% from the standpoint of what they make up the totality of our character, but it's more complicated than that because each one of those one-fifths is not always functioning at 100%. So I don't know a way to graph that other than just explain it. What you are in fifths as you look at the uh, the, uh, abilities that you are given, uh, how much do you measure up in all those? I don't know, I don't know. But the degree to which each of those elements is in gear and functioning and in concert with the others measures the likelihood as to whether or not we're going to adopt and adapt to what God wants us to be. So I'm simply encouraging you before we get into the real heart of our topic, you might think, boy, I thought we'd never get into it. I've asked you to be patient, have I not? Bad joke, I'm sorry. Evan, you could laugh at that, that was good. No? Let's talk about patience. Is God patient? Well, God's identified in Romans chapter 15 as the God of patience. Have you ever stop and thought about what God tolerates? In my life? In your life? The lives of this or any other nation? Past or present? what it's going to be like going forward. To identify God as a God of patience, that's saying a lot. It's saying that God tolerates things that he'd rather not see me thinking, saying, or doing. And you too, and nations too. Not just now, but as long as man's been on the surface of this earth. The Bible is filled with passages that address the patience of God. And the reason why we're introducing this is because all of those things that we talked about at the beginning at length, the introduction was to make us realize whatever is going to be introduced in Scripture that says God is, is what God wants me to be like. And so if God is patient, I can rest assured that somewhere, more than one somewhere, God's going to say, you need to be this way, too. You need to be this way, too. So that word is translated as endurance in different translations. It's translated as perseverance or steadfastness in others. The point is you just don't have this attitude on a a once-in-a-while, occasional, as it's convenient basis, but it's something that defines who God is all the time. And as a result, it should define us all the time. So what does that mean? Here's the definition. This is a technical definition. We'll go through it quickly. The capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. I want you to note that. It's not just in the face of difficulty, it's specific difficulties. My frustration at facing that tangled mess of stuff two days ago that I threw at my feet because I couldn't get it untangled immediately, that's not difficult from the standpoint of what God's addressing. He's talking about patience on a bigger scale. And when I get ticked off, and we get ticked off, about things on a much smaller scale. It's not talking about patience like that, wait in line, wait your turn. It's talking about being patience in the con- patient in the context of serving God when others don't want you to serve God, or when it's not convenient to serve God, or when you don't want to serve God. So notice this, it's in the face of difficulty, and as you read through all the passages, it's a very specific difficulty in which we demonstrate patience. Patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance. In the second definition, the act or state of patient waiting for someone or something expectation. You go to the doctor's office and you are a patient waiting patiently to see the doctor. That's not what this is talking about. But it includes it in principle. It includes more than that. It includes being a patient in the context of suffering the most extreme persecution in which your livelihood is threatened, in which your wives are threatened, and still being willing to endure and to be steadfast, though all of that stuff can be taken from you, even life itself. That's a little bit more substantive than dealing with a tangled mess in my garage. We get impatient at the slightest of things. How do we face up to patience on a larger scale? Let's think about God's patience. Book of Nehemiah. This is during the uh, periods of restoration, and uh, Nehemiah speaks to the children of Israel. And this is just one glimpse. Do you have any idea how many years God was patient with you? Well, let's just look at that very quickly. Two thousand years before the time of Christ, Abraham. Fifteen hundred years before the time of Christ, Moses. It takes a little bit of time for them to get into and occupy the land, roughly 300 or 400 plus years of the judges. Then the period of kings comes and you drop down to 722 BC in the northern kingdom, 750 years in. Three quarters of a millennium in. And God sends them into captivity after 750 years of tolerating their sins. Yeah, for many years God was patient. And another 116 years later, 606 B.C., the beginning of three stages of carrying away of the southern, more righteous kingdom, so to speak, God waits. 900 years God gave them to be right, to do right, to think right, to speak right, to act right, and He didn't live up to His expectations. The abilities that we talked about before, the expectations that we addressed before, all fell on them then as it falls on us today. 900 years God tolerated their wayward wandering they're faithful one day unfaithfulness the next day just read the judges it's heartbreaking for me to read that thinking people could be that bad even more so when I realized what that did to a holy God who wanted them to be more than they were and they didn't live up to that Bible's replete with passages that talk about that oh Lord You know remember me visit me take vengeance for me on my persecutors read the rest of that in your enduring patience that's kind of interesting two words together that mean close to the same thing god was patient on an ongoing basis and mr jeremiah the prophet the weeping prophet read the book of lamentations demonstrated patience in his own life as he mimicked imitated the nature of god suffered persecution cut up the scriptures threw him in uh, threw him in in the pit would have let him die uh, the stuff that I face on a daily basis I'm not tested that much like that nobody's thrown me in a pit left me for dead because I said something that roiled them spiritually speaking no well, I've had people say I don't believe that I'll never believe that for a million years but nobody's ever done that to me Nobody's struck me nobody shot me nobody's beat me up I don't want you come in my house anymore I've heard that but that didn't hurt physically The folks that were faithful to God in these contexts suffered physically as they endured patiently. Have patience. Have patience with me and I'll pay all. That's what the man said that we alluded to before, Matthew 18, and turned around and demanded payment from somebody else. I want God to be patient with me, but I'm not patient with anybody else. How do you think that flies? Be merciful as I'm merciful means be patient as I'm patient. And so if God's so tolerant of me and my weaknesses, I need to be tolerant of others. That does not mean to overlook or to excuse sin. But it means be loving and kind in the midst of teaching people about their sin. Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Psalm 37, principles repeated in chapter 40, verse 1. You read through the book of Psalms and you will see David pouring out his heart in large measure, other psalmists were recorded there, pouring out his heart in large measure about the, the difficulties he was facing. And the difficulties facing in, uh, were primarily focused on people who were opposing him because he was a king, because he stood, generally speaking, for righteousness and others did not. And so the persecution that he was being threatened with was because, in many cases, he was what God wanted him to be. That doesn't mean he was perfect. But David was thankful for God's patience. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Yeah, we like things done. We like things done, but it doesn't happen all the the time as quickly as we want. The patient is spirit. The patient is spirit. is better than the proud in spirit. Imagine you're Abraham. God tells you in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, I'm going to give you blessings. Three chapters later, we don't know how much time has elapsed. He says, "Uh, hadn't happened yet. Can this man, Eliezer, my steward, be the heir? Nope, nope, it's going to be your little heir, literal heir. Has a child by his handmaid, Ishmael, by Hagar. And uh, God says, that's not going to be the child. And he pleads saying, oh, that Ishmael may walk before you. And it's 25 years before the child of promise is born. I can't wait 27, 25 years for you to do something for me that you said you were going to do yesterday. I'm not that patient. That's not a test of my faith as much as it is me dealing with you as human beings. Abraham waited a long time. Israel waited for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. It was their fault because they didn't regard God as they should have. All of these things teach us that patience is good for us, spiritually speaking, but it's not just the little things. It's on the larger scale of things. I'm not going to live forever, nor are you. I have to be patient until the day that my life is gone and I get to be on the other side of this life. Sometimes you wish it was faster. Paul expressed that. If I die now, I get to be with the Lord, but as long as I'm here with you, I can help you. So there's a sense in which each of us patiently endures the care we give to others while we're patiently waiting to be with the Lord. It means we suffer a lot because I'd rather be somewhere else and you'd rather be somewhere else in the bosom of Abraham. And so patience causes us to possess our souls. This is an incredible passage in 1 Thessalonians 1 in which Paul extols the virtues of the church at Thessalonica for their patience. And if you read through the context of both of those letters, he's not just saying you guys are easygoing, laid-back people. He's talking about the patience they demonstrated in the midst of the sufferings that they also faced, and the challenges, doctrinally and so forth, that they faced, and practically that they faced. And that's not just there. It's every letter written to every church that they were facing challenges to their faith, not minor inconveniences, not traffic jams going into and out of the city of Atlanta or anywhere else. Not your car that didn't start, not a mortgage payment that you've got to pay. You don't have the dollars and cents for it. Those are all legitimate concerns and I'm not minimizing them. I'm simply saying they don't amount on scale and degree to the patience that God expected of Old Testament Israel and New Testament Christians to demonstrate as they served him first and foremost. All those other things are peripheral matters. Matters of concern, but peripheral matters. Not life and death, heaven or hell matters. And I sometimes let less than life or death, heaven or hell matters, tick me off. It's a sign of my weakness. If God wants me to be patient about these kind of things, maybe I ought to be a little bit more patient about these things that really are of no consequence in life. Maybe. Notice your patient continuance in good. Doing all of these things that are for glory. Again, this is in the context of living in the first century facing all of the problems that address them. Notice this passage. They were demonstrating patience in the midst of tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. This is not just dealing with all the things of life. It's thinking about more than that. Most of the texts and passages of the New Testament and the Old Testament that address patience are talking about spiritual matters. We are told to wait on the Lord spiritually. We're told to be steadfast in the Lord spiritually. It has nothing to do with earning a living. It has nothing to do specifically with your health or how long you're going to live or the possessions you have or whether or not you get the bonus or the promotion or you can retire early and live on an island somewhere. That's not what any of this is about. This is all about being faithful to God and being willing to adore anything, counting the cost in the process of being patient. So we must be willing to suffer, and we don't face this here. Not like people did in the Old Testament and New Testament times. We must be willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ, for a greater spiritual good. Would you allow something to hurt you physically for the spiritual good of somebody else? You might think, well, that's, that's an awkward question. Jesus went to the cross physically for the spiritual good of everybody before, during, and after his lifetime. And so when we read passages that say, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, as Paul wrote to the church in Galatians, he's just talking hyperbole, it's just overstatement. No, Paul was willing to suffer for the betterment of other Christians. So must we, and be patient in the process. Just read through the list of things that he endured. As you read through the Corinthian epistles, all the sufferings physically that he went through for the benefit of others. I don't go through any of that stuff. Most Christians don't go through any of that stuff, and I'm not saying our Christianity is not legitimate. I'm simply saying we live in different times, different sets of circumstances, and we're far less patient on far easier circumstances than people were. Here's the point. If we are to love God and love neighbor, what we mentioned at the beginning, if we are to love God and love neighbor, then we must be willing to be patient, enduring, in every circumstance of life spiritually, what we go through. And if I can do that on a larger scale about things that relate to the salvation of my soul and the souls of others and the glorification of God, if I can do that on that larger scale, then I should be willing to do that on a much lesser scale, a much smaller scale about all the things that just, well, like that jumbled mess of cords at my feet in 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 my garage. I didn't say anything bad didn't think anything bad but i was frustrated and wasn't very patient because i had to take all that stuff apart to get the work done that i needed to get done there's a moment of weakness i didn't deny the lord and reject his plan of salvation didn't curse anybody i was just frustrated that things didn't go the way i wanted them to go moment of weakness yes insignificant yeah but i don't want that to be a pattern And God does not want that to be a pattern in your life. We need to make sure that we focus on things that are a whole lot worse than that jumbled mess that you see there, that I see here. Didn't take forever to untangle enough of that to get the work done that I needed to get done. And I accomplished some things after I overcame my frustration and my lack of patience. Bible teaches us that God's a God of patience and he is wanting us waiting for us to do everything that we need to do to become more like him we often sum up the gospel in lots of ways we speak about the death burial and resurrection of christ first corinthians 15 that's a legitimate summary but the bigger story is more than that we often talk about our obedience to the gospel in summary uh, fashion as well we uh, come to faith we repent of our sins We're immersed into Christ for the mission of sins. Legitimate, but also summary. There's a lot more to it than that. One of the things that I want us to understand on the larger scale as it relates to what it means to become a Christian is God wants me to be more like him today than I was yesterday. And more like him tomorrow than I'm going to be today. And part of that is a reckoning of who I am in God's sight. God be merciful to me, a sinner, is what one man called out you recognize the gravity of your own sins? you recognize the hopelessness of trying to save yourself from your sins? I hope you understand both of those. And you realize that the only way that those sins are going to be removed, not held against you anymore, is by submitting to God, becoming more like Him? The beginning of the process of becoming more like God is part of what we do when we are immersed into Christ for the mission of our sins, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Jesus died literally; we die spiritually. Jesus was buried literally; we are buried beneath the body of water. Jesus rose literally from the grave three days later. We resurrect to walk in newness of life, all in Romans chapter six. But that was just the beginning of Jesus' earthly reign, not the end of it. And that's just the beginning of a lifetime of service to Father, Son, and Spirit, not the end of it. From that point forward we need to learn to be more like God than we were the day before and grow especially in patience in enduring things that really matter if you're not a Christian we want you to think about becoming one through what we've just explained hopefully understanding that the summary is in much more detail spelled out in Scripture coming to faith that Jesus is the Messiah changing your mindset, repenting of your sins, and being committed to die not only initially, but continually of those sins as you're immersed in the Christ for the mission of sins and raised to walk in the of life. If you want to do that, we provide that opportunity for you now. If you are a member of the body of Christ, we hope and pray that you, as Paul said, die daily to self and do everything you possibly can, especially in the realm of patience, to be more Christ-like than you were yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let's stand and let's sing, and those who might need to do so responded this time.